what pockets up a beer or a cold libation. I can tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said, I'll start up with some talking and some moody clips and popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation, kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and of course you know it's all about games. I said, slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. Jason. Welcome back to the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today is another massive call-in episode, but during those calls, I'm going to talk about things. So it's I'll be breaking the calls up with my thoughts. I'm going to let you know what skill system I've decided for my solo D&D game. I will also talk more about apocalypse and, and this kind of controversy that's come up around the word. There are calls on a number of other subjects as well. So we're going to get to those really quickly, but I have two quick housekeeping things. One is my buddy Rich over at Cockatrice Nuggets just put out an episode talking about favorite products for 2023, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Go listen to a great list from Rich. And I'll say my favorite things for 2023. I'll give you one new product that came out in 2023, and I'll give you one old product that's new to Jason for 2023. So the new product that was published in 2023 is Holmes and Clark. I had Aaron Clark on the show. We talked about that game back on 25 October. So you can go check out that episode. I'll put a link in the show notes. But Holmes and Clark is free rule set, so go check it out. You can get the print copy for basically the price of printing it. Very neat game. Nice OSR game. Highly recommended. The new DeJason product for 2023 would be the 1986 Canadian role-playing game, Night of the Ninja, where you play ninja mercenaries in the 1980s. That was my favorite new Jason product for 2023. Okay, is the second housekeeping item I have is DaveCon. So, tickets for DaveCon are on sale. You can go get those tickets. DaveCon is in Minneapolis in April 26th to 28th. If you want to play Bronstein with the creator Bronstein... Dave Wesley, you can do that at DaveCon. Dave McGarry, I'm saying his name wrong, I'm sorry, Meg Gary, but the creator of the Dungeon Board game is going to be at DaveCon. Mike Carr, you know, of TSR fame, is going to be at DaveCon. Professor Dungeon Master, yes, from YouTube, is going to be at DaveCon. So you can go there. It's still a pretty small convention, so you get plenty of time with these luminaries. You get to, easily can get into games. Some great games are going to be there. It's kind of old-school focused, AD&D focused, but there are actually all kinds of games that are going to be run there. So Professor Dungeon Master is going to be doing seminars in addition to games. Uh, Dave Wesley is going to run Bronstein two separate times, so you have a chance to get in there. So definitely check it out. There will be a link in the show notes. And the other thing that's kind of tied with DaveCon is that Vic Dorso, who puts on DaveCon, currently has a Kickstarter out. It's a card game. It's called Cutthroats and Thieves. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you like screw-your-neighbor kind of card games where you're 
you know, trying to backstab each other during the game and undercut each other and do all that kind of thing. That's the kind of game this is. That looks pretty easy to learn and pretty fun. That may be the way to go. So th there's going to be a link in the show notes for that. And with that, I'm going to open up the mailbag. Let's get into these calls. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. We're going to start with a first-time caller, which is always fun, but I want everybody to remember how nervous they might have been the first time they called into a podcast. So we can't judge our first-time callers. The first time you call into a podcast, it's kind of uncomfortable. We stumble over words a little bit. That's normal. Um, Johnny here is part of the Grog Talk Empire, and the Grog Talk Empire is a loose confederation of first edition AD&D fans. Uh, I'm a member. M.W. Lewis is a member. Minion, also known as Rob, over at Confessions of a Weed Timmer, Spushi is a member. Vic Dorso, who I mentioned earlier, running DaveCon is a member. Uh, Grog Talk runs a convention every year in Florida at the end of September. There's a link in my show notes. You can check it all out there. But so when he mentions Grog Talk and in, in a title with the Grog Talk Empire, that, that's what that's referring to. In fact, I've got a title with the Grog Talk Empire, and you can see that in the show notes as well. But the topic of this call, I think, is very important because it's, you know, kind of ties into being a good player and etiquette at the table that sometimes I think is lacking in some places. So I'm going to turn the mic over to first time caller. Howdy, Mr. Jason. Uh, this is Johnny from uh, the Grog Talk Empire, uh, uh, Powerful Silence through the Alamo. I just listened to Mr. Uh, Lewis talking about uh, when he was running a game and, and the, the, the wizard or the cleric, I'm bad at listening, I guess. The wizard or the cleric was uh, was kind of back in the corner and there was a discussion about whether or not he could pick up the weapon after the DM said, you can pick it up and do it. Uh, what's alien to me with that isn't so much the weapons rules that there's ways to get around that, but it's for me, it's always hearing people arguing with the DM and even from the beginning of my playing, which was really sparse, I never thought to argue with the man running the running the table. It just it's not in me. I'm not an authoritarian type, uh, but I don't get to arguing with the DM. DM says I can do it. The most I might do is ask him because I know how DMs can be. Uh, are you setting me up? You know, <laughs> and if he says no, okay, well, and I pick it up, and that's just the rule at that table. Uh, it doesn't occur to me to argue with these people. It doesn't occur to me to, to get mad. If I really don't like the way someone's running the table, at the end of the game, I probably just won't be back. It would have to be egregious for me to get up in the middle of the game. I mean, something personal, something really bad, not just rules that I don't like. So I've never related to that. I've said that about 10 times. I'm I'm rambling, but I honestly can't fathom going after an argument with the DM. I know people do it as a DM. I've had people argue with me, and I'll entertain it. I'm not like – I don't shut people down immediately. No, this is the way it is. I'll listen, and I've even adopted stuff. I'm not authoritarian like that. 
so I want to just shut somebody down immediately. But in the end, I have to make the ruling because I've been running the game. I've done the prep. I'm doing the work end of it. <clears throat> the player work is limited. They just got to learn the rules. They got to know their character. I have to know all the stuff. Uh, and I see that as a DM, uh, as a player, too. The DM does all that work, and I'm going to come in and second-guess him. I, I don't I don't think that's polite. I think that's like walking into somebody's house and uh, putting your feet up on the furniture. It's just that's the same kind of discourteousness to me. I get that people don't see it that way, so they really don't mean it that way. Uh, and, you know, gamers, we tended to be a little – we're a little weird. We're a little obnoxious. Uh, sometimes our uh, social skills ain't really there. So I kind of expect it in that group to, you know, one or two people just, they just don't get it. you got to explain it to them. And most of them, once you explain it to them, they'll, they'll back down. Some people be obnoxious. Okay, the call cuts off there, but I think we get the gist of it. And I think all of us have accidentally cut ourselves off making calls in to other people as well. I Again, I think the idea of etiquette and being polite to the dungeon master or the game master and not being rude during the game is something we should all keep in mind. Now, I'm going to turn the mic over to somebody that maybe I've pushed the envelope a little bit with on that in games and I feel bad for and, and want to apologize publicly to, and that is Joe over at Hindsightless. And Joe's calling to continue a discussion we've been having on this show regarding the implied setting of Dungeons & Dragons and if it's post-apocalyptic. I feel that it is, but to me, it's post-apocalyptic in the way that Thundar the Barbarian is post-apocalyptic, the way the Dying Earth novels are post-apocalyptic. We, we've been discussing this on uh, Discord over at Carl from the Gemologist Presents, his Discord channel. And the idea is that this is civilizations built upon civilizations built upon civilizations, right? Or built upon forgotten civilizations, I guess. And, you know, Arlen Walker from Live from Helm's Wasteland, who we're going to hear about later on the show on a different topic, gave a word for this. Because I asked, you know, maybe we need different words. Because Carl... And Joe previously called in talking about real world real world where certain societies have had, a, you know, the end of their society or you've had the Black Plague or something like that. But to me, that's not an apocalypse like Thunder of the Barbarian, right? And or Gamma World. And that's what I was looking for. And so I was looking for a word to separate the idea of Pompeii from, you know, Gamma World, right? And Arlen from Live from Pelham's Wasteland came up with a word, stratigraphic succession. So I guess what I'm talking about is stratigraphic succession, and what everybody else is talking about is the end of the world as they knew it. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, we've got calls from Joe and from Hobbs. Hobbs does random screed, and I want to point out Hobbs just had a really big honor done um, over Bryce over at 10-Foot Pole, which is a blog that reviews adventures, reviewed one of Hobbs's adventures and gave it the, the highest marks, gave it best. And Bryce is very, very 
uh, honest in the reviews and doesn't pull any punches. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, that review. Uh, it's, it's a neat product. I, I recommend it. And I recommend, of course, checking out all my callers' podcasts. But so the next two calls are if D&D's implied setting is post-apocalyptic. And really the calls are more bickering about what the definition of apocalyptic is. And like I say, I'm probably using the wrong word. I'm talking about replicating Thunder of the Barbarian and Gamma World and the Dying Earth. I'm not talking about the end of a one nation or one civilization. I'm talking, you know, one one culture civilization. I'm talking about like global catastrophe. Yo, Jason, calling in with some more apocalypse talk <laughs> just for fun, man. So yeah, I, after hearing you talk about how MW said, or I forget, it was either you or MW said we weren't using the right definition of apocalypse. I went and looked it up. So the first definition of apocalypse is in a world, a world ending event which means if that actually happened, there is no coming back from it because the world is ended. <laughs> There's nobody left. So the second definition is a more localized form of an apocalypse where a lot of destruction and death happened, which that's what the Black Death was. So by definition, the Black Death was actually, in fact, an apocalypse, according to that second definition. By the first definition, the Earth has never had an apocalypse because the world didn't end. So, yeah, man, <laughs> I get you're talking about a very limited form of definition for the word apocalypse that involves, you know, some science and, you know, like Thunder of the Barbarian, which absolutely total by the second definition was an apocalypse, but not by the first definition. So, yeah, man. <laughs> Just wanted to get down and dirty with some more apocalypse talk because it's fun stuff. Anyway, dude, take it easy. Peace out. Hey, Jason. I think we really need to talk about cataclysms and apocalyptic events in the real world. To think that the bubonic or black plague was not a cataclysmic event is madness. When you were living within it, I guarantee the world felt empty. It was a difficult, you know, you were getting resources from strange places, but I didn't really call to talk about that. What I did call about is what about Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii? Pretty cataclysmic and definitely one that's used in D&D-esque type games today. What about the Mayan culture? Just have it being invaded and the diseases that, I don't know, I guess it's Mayan or Aztec or what, but those cultures were destroyed and many, many remains were left and, and we don't really understand them at all. What about the Chicoati? It was supposedly a pretty large empire off of the Mississippi and disappeared without a trace and nobody knows why. So these, in a medieval-type world, were very big events. Uh, they totally destroyed these cultures. So I don't understand how we don't really... Your specific peculiarity in the definition of that is crazy to me. Which doesn't really matter, but I just thought I'd call it a comment. 
And Jason, I'm glad you did call in and comment. I really appreciate that. When you hear my theme song that TJ did for me and it refers to me as the other Jason, Jason Hobbs is the first Jason of podcasting. So that's why I'm the other Jason. Um, thank you for that call. Really appreciate it. I kind of already set my case up prior to playing those calls. But if you want to hear more Apocalypse Talk, MW, the World's MW Lewis podcast, has who we're going to hear from here in a little bit on this show, has an episode all about this, about definitions of apocalypse and what he feels the implied setting of D&D is and if it's an apocalypse or not, or post-apocalyptic setting or not. So if you're curious on that and you want to hear more apocalypse talk, go check his episode out. The link is in the show notes. Now we're going to switch to Daniel of the Bandits Keep Media Empire, who's going to comment on a recent episode I did with K.R. King of D&D Homebrew. Hey, Jason. Daniel of Bandits Keep calling in. I started listening to the episode with you and the one and only K.R. King about Kolchek. And before you got deeply into the plot, I decided I was going to watch it first because I like to watch stuff first. So I just finished watching it. I haven't listened to the episode yet, but I will. And I'll probably call back, I guess. But, uh, wow, that was actually really good. I had seen the show, a couple episodes of the show, which I enjoyed. It was okay, I thought. It didn't really blow me away. But, man, the movie was actually really neat. I, I liked how they put it together. Uh, yeah. And I this I actually found it on YouTube. As you said, it was available on YouTube. And it's part of a double feature. So I'm now going to watch The Night Strangler. So, We'll see where that goes, but uh, I will listen to the podcast later this week and call back in. Daniel, I'm glad you enjoyed that. He's talking about the Night Stalker TV movie from 1972. You can find it on YouTube. You can find DVD and Blu-ray sets of it. It is where the character of Kolchak first appeared, played, of course, by Darren McGavin. Uh, K.R. King came on and joined me for a discussion about that. And we had a lot of fun doing that. I hope everybody enjoyed listening to it. Daniel is not called back in yet, but I'm sure he will, and I'll play that call in a future episode. The next call is from Joe Salvador of Raven Guide Games. Hey, Jace. It is Joe. Um, hey, I just wanted to give you a call. I know it's, it's been a minute since I uh, got around to calling in. I missed a couple of the um, uh, the Monday movie nights. Um I will be getting to uh, Conan, though. Uh, but, hey, man, I just want to say that, uh, you know, I'm still listening, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know I listen. Um, but appreciate everything you do. You had a really great year in podcasting, a lot of milestones that you hit. Uh, the year of Pune was awesome. Um, you know, there's some classic films that I know, like Cyborg and, you know, Sword and Sorcerer. Um, I had never seen Dollman, so so I watched that one after after you talked about it. And there's plenty of movies here that you, you talked about that I just had never even heard of. So, uh, you know, eventually I'll probably I'll probably get to some more of those. Um, but yeah, had a really great time with it. Um, you always have some great topics. Uh, always doing some great work. And you know, I appreciate it, man. Um, I appreciate you uh, joining my game, um, playing Reaver with us, offering your input, and I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, inviting me to games to, to game with you. Uh, so yeah, man, um, you're awesome. You're a good friend. And I'll talk to you soon. Later. Hey, Joe, thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate you letting me play in your games. I've always enjoyed when you played in mine. And Joe is also a friend outside of that. We, you know, I've reached out and we've talked to each other about personal things and, and other things outside of gaming as well. But 
I'm looking forward to hopefully meeting Joe at ShireCon in Connecticut this fall. Well, not this fall, next fall in 2024. So I'm definitely looking forward to meeting Joe and the other Reaver Playtest crew at that point. So fingers crossed that that's going to happen. Yeah, we've had a lot of great things this year. The European, I'm very happy about that I managed to get through 12 films to commemorate Albert Pune, uh, legendary filmmaker. Uh, very happy I was able to accomplish that task. So thank you for, for mentioning that. I'm glad that's brought some things to your attention. And Joe did call in his Conan entry. Folks, if you have not called an entry for Conan, I need it by the end of the day on this Friday, the 22nd of December. That's the cutoff, 22nd of December, because I have to have time to put it together because the episode is going to come out on the 25th of December, on Monday. And watch a Conan movie. You can pick any one you want. You can pick Red Sony. You can pick the new 2011 Conan. Uh, but call in and let us know what you think about it. There are all the ways to reach me are in the show notes. We do this every month. We pick a movie and everybody calls their thoughts in, and then I play them all together. Lots of fun. It's an idea that Goblin's Henchman came up with, and I'm very grateful that he did come up with that. So more on that this coming Monday, but if you haven't called in, you still have a day or two to get those calls in. Okay, our next call is going to be from Carl of The Geomologist Presents. He's going to talk about book bindings a little bit, and then he's going to open up a discussion, or continue a discussion, I should say, about wealth. So BJ of the Arcane Alienist podcast recently called in about wealth in D&D and the gold standard and all this stuff, and the idea of, well, what happens if the characters get all this wealth and they don't want to venture anymore? So Carl calls in about that, and M.W., the world's M.W. Lewis, calls in about that topic as well. So I'm just going to play these two calls back to back. Hey, Jason. Yeah, I agree with you about binding and the product quality. For example, my deities and demigods and fiend folio are near pristine, and the binding has held up really well. Uh, actually, even my uh, 3D cover, I know it's like the sixth printing, but a 3D cover, a D&D uh, Game Master's book, DM's Guide, uh, it is still, the binding is really nice. It's just those, the ones with the yellow spines, I guess, got sort of messed up or the glue was bad or they were in the warehouse too long and, and yeah, they kind of fall apart because like I said, my Morden Canaan cover, uh, orange spine, uh, player's handbook is kind of like that anyway yeah who cares about that kind of stuff let's just go play some games right and i guess i have a comment on bj's call what is a why is it bad if the adventures are filthy stinking rich they still want adventure and play i guess it doesn't matter and the gm could have adventures centered around the fact that they have a mound of gold but uh but yeah i don't mind it it's kind of funny um that 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 is a problem that you have too much money in the game whereas in contrast in traveler it seems like um the players are always needing to pay those bills it's a interesting dichotomy in the way the game quote-unquote economy works but you know like you said let's just play the game i think i said that already 
Jason, M.W. Lewis here, Worlds of M.W. Lewis podcast and uh, Nick of Eden's Tower Adventure Module author. So quickly, uh, I'm going to I'm going to talk about this in my podcast. Uh, I'm going to put out a couple podcasts in the next two weeks. I can't I haven't been able to do one since December began, just too busy at work. But I, I'm going to talk about this idea of adventurers having too much wealth to retire. So I'm already recording my response to this for my show, but I want to let you know the response to that is very simple. It's two pronged. One, uh, and I, there's more than it's more than two pronged, but I'll go over the rest of the prong. I, I want to you know keep having these ten minute calls on your show. It's not really fair. I think people got to be careful. I got to be careful how much I say on your show. You give me a lot of play. I love it, but uh, uh, you know uh, other people have things to say too, not just me. So it's but the two prongs I'm going to say quickly because they're quick and easily understandable. One, adventurers adventure because they like to adventure. Uh, it's not just to get the wealth. Two, um, the rules are set up such that the players may gain a lot of wealth during an adventure, but the rules are there deliberately to leech away the wealth from the players. Uh, and though the way those rules are set up should be a guide to a DM that suggests that there could be other ways players should be using their wealth besides just hoarding it. Uh, I don't think what is specified in the DMG, such as monthly fee to just survive, there should be a payment. Taxes uh, are in there. Uh, leveling up costs, which... I ran a quick example in my head. Uh, five fourth-level characters, if they only train for one week to become level five, that would be 30,000 gold pieces right there. Uh, so you can already see by level four, that's a lot. I mean, so by level eight, double it. You could just double it. And then if any of them get a bad rating and they need more weeks to train, well, you you you. it's not just... Uh, it's not just you double it then. Like, so uh, instead of 6,000 to level up, if you need two weeks to train, uh, we'll say one of them needs two weeks to train, then it goes to 7,500 because it's per week. The cost is per week. So, um, but people hand wave a lot of these rules. So that starts, and that's what I'll discuss in my podcast. The fact that, Dungeon Masters hand wave a lot of these rules and then as a result don't know what to do about the fact that players have a lot of money. Uh, so I'll, I'll get into that. It is a great call. I mean, this is stuff. Uh, these are the these are the, the big ticket challenges of our age here. And, and we need to solve these problems or at least continue uh, uh, to work through them. Uh, because uh, we can't live, we can't live and properly function uh, unless we figure all this out. Okay, great calls. There's already a link to MW's show in the show notes, so watch that for that future episode when it comes out on how to tax the player's wealth. When we look at the DMG for AD&D, what we see is 
the each player character will automatically expend not less than 100 gold pieces per level of experience per month. And that covers support, upkeep, equipment, entertainment expenses. So, you know, this is going to depend GM to GM, but really, you don't need to, the way I see it, and other there are other GMs that see it this way, you don't need to charge them per meal or per night at the inn or any of that stuff. Now, first level, when they only have, you know, a couple coppers to scratch together, yeah, you can charge individual expenses. But once they start raking in the money, like they should be raking in the money, then you don't charge them for meals and drinks and all that stuff. That upkeep cost covers all that. Now, taxation and things like that, uh, ties to churches, things like that, are above that. But that's in there. So there are different ways to do it, but I'm really curious to hear MW's show and his discussion on that. So let's all watch out for that. The next set of calls here are going to be reference the rules cyclopedia and my leaving something out of the discussion. So the first call is from Decahedron Joe of the Decahedron RPG podcast. Now, Decahedron Joe just finished a contest and just released an episode announcing the winner of that contest. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm not going to tell you who won because, well, you have to go listen. Daniel from Bandit's Keep joined him to announce that winner. From Decahedron, this is Joe. Feedback for Jason. Love your show. <laughs> oh, that was silly. Sorry about that, Jason. Apparently, it's a very musical day here. Hey, I wanted to call in and talk to you about Beckme versus Rule Cyclopedia. You keep talking about comparing the two, and you kind of say that you like Beckme better because Rule Cyclopedia isn't good at teaching. It's like more of a reference document. And you're leaving a big piece out of that equation, uh, which is... Well, Rule Cyclopedia was supposed to be a reference document. That's not what it's meant for. For teaching, you shouldn't be comparing Beckme to Rule Cyclopedia. You should be comparing Beckme to the classic Dungeons and Dragons game, right? That's the big black box that came out in 1991. You know, this is the, the Aaron Alston era. In the Beckme line, players were expected to buy basic and then expert and then companion and then master and then immortals. And all the rules were scattered amongst all these five books. And you had to go from one to the other, back and back. To make their life easier, Aaron Olson said, well, let's just have two products. Let's have the new easy to master, the box set, so that they can learn how to play. And then from there, instead of saying, okay, go buy this next box set, now buy this next box set. Instead, just go by the Rule Cyclopedia, which is just one volume that has everything you need to play. And now that you know how to play, you won't need to refer to the, the basic stuff anymore. And I actually think that's a superior approach from a player friendliness point of view, not a how many, you know, different things can we sell point of view. I don't know if you've ever seen the big black box. You know, it's like twice the length of the the normal boxes about the same height i think a little deeper and inside it has like the rule book which goes from levels one through five so it replaces basic and a little bit of expert as well well about two-thirds of expert i guess <laughs> it has like a tabletop map for a dungeon and it has a dungeon master screen but the most important thing it has is this deck of like 
30-ish cards, I think. I'm going by memory on the number. Don't hold me to that. Uh, and they're not like, don't think a deck of cards like playing cards. Think like index cards, like 6 by 9 or something, 5 by 8 something like that. This was the tutorial of how to play the game. This is like in Menser's Basic, where he has the little, you know, choose-your-own-adventure type section. There's a little choose-your-own-type section in this deck of cards. And there's a section about how to, as a DM, how to run players through your first dungeon. And it's using that tabletop map that's in the set. Now, later on, when 1994 comes along, I think they decided that that was all too expensive to produce. So instead of the new easy-to-master Dungeons & Dragons, it became the classic Dungeons & Dragons game. And this time it's the gold box, and they don't have the cards in there anymore. And that's the part I'm guessing was too expensive to produce. And all they did was take the information that was on the cards and they shoved it in the front of the book. So it's still there. It's just in the book now. And either way, this is what you're supposed to use to learn how to play. This replaces that part of basic that you seem to think is missing from Rule Cyclopedia. It's not missing. It was just in another product. Just like if you picked up Master or Companion, you know, you would say the same thing. You know, it's missing this information. It's not missing. It's just in the introductory product. So, yeah, you you just keep leaving that out. And I felt someone should say it. I waited for someone else to say it. No one did. So I thought I should. The other thing I will say that I like about this edition over all the others from Holmes onward is that the word basic doesn't show up anywhere on it. It always irks me when people talk about basic D&D because there is no such game as basic D&D. The game is Dungeons and Dragons. And if you bought Dungeons and Dragons in a box with a module and some dice and stuff, that whole set was the basic set to get you started. But the game itself was just Dungeons and Dragons. There is no such game as basic D&D. It's D&D or there was advanced D&D, but D&D was the game. But now I'm on a soapbox and I'm ranting on your show. I should save that for mine. Uh, thanks for everything you do, sir. Great show. Keep it up. Bye. Joe, I'm glad that you did call in. So this is a hole in my knowledge. I started with Beckme with the box sets, quickly went to AD&D First Edition, and then we moved on to Merp, Rollmaster, Palladium. I went in the Army. I, I was in the Army by the time the Rule Cyclopedia and I guess this big black box came out. I never had Rule Cyclopedia, the big black box, the classic adventure game gold box, I never even knew about that stuff really until later in life. Um, I have PDF. Actually, I have a print-on-demand copy of Rule Psychopedia now. But, yeah, I never played with that back in the day. Wasn't even aware of it. And I've still never looked at the big black, that big black box or this classic adventure game in the gold box. I've never seen those in person or whatnot. I think they might sell PDFs of them, so maybe I'll grab PDFs and read those, because you're right. I am being unfair in applying or comparing two different things. So that's a mistake on my part, and I'm glad you called me on it. I will track down a copy of the Big Black Box so I can compare that to the basic set or basic and expert sets um, it, as far as setting up the Rule Cyclopedia for what it's really meant to be, which is a Rule Cyclopedia or like a I guess today people call them like SRDs, right? That's basically what it is. Uh, or for BRP, like the big gold book was, right? So thank you for calling me out on that. I think you're right. 
I, I was comparing apples and oranges, and I need to get a hold of this big black box so I can compare the Mulve Red Basic box with this big black box. So thank you for that, and thank you for all that you do over on your show. Joe also hosts some web forums, the Play Web Forums. There is a link. I have a link to Joe's podcast in the show notes. If you go to that page, there's also you can go to the Play Forums from there. Um, not super active, but nice set of people there, and you can talk about different shows. Evil Jeff from Minions and Muses on there. Um, a few other people are on there, so check that out. Okay, let's go on to our next call, which I believe is from Daniel, responding to similar topics, specifically a call from Eric Salzweedle, the Omega-3D Chicken Coop, about wizards using swords and how he would handle that, and Daniel's going to respond to that. By the way, on the 30th of December, I'm going to have a special episode where Eric and I discuss the Rules Cyclopedia, so... Look forward to that. We recorded that prior to Decaheter and Joe's call, so there's no mention of the big black box in that episode because we didn't know about it, or I didn't know about it at the time of that episode. So that is a hole there that's probably going to irk uh, Decaheter and Joe a little bit. But I hope you tune in on the 30th of December for that special New Year's Rules Cyclopedia episode that we recorded. Okay, now I'm going to turn it over to Daniel. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Mance. Keep calling in from the car. Uh, really enjoying the conversation back and forth about the magic user and the sword still. To Eric's call, yeah, okay, I, I somewhat agree and I disagree. I agree if you're playing AD&D First Edition, like Jason says in his reply, because then you're minus five to hit. But in most OSR games, a first through third level magic user has the exact same chance to hit as the fighter. So... I mean, I guess you could say the armor and the hit points, but again, that's not a guarantee. You're basically talking about who's better with hitting with the weapon. And first through third level, it's the the same. You know, yes, a fighter can have an 18 strength, but so could a magic user. You know, a fighter could also have a 9 strength. So if you're actually looking at it at the balance, that is the average person, then, you know, a magic user and fighter at, at equal level have the same chance. So... So you don't get that it's harder for them to hit with it anyways thing. Thus, you need to add some kind of a penalty, I think, in in my mind. But of course, just like Jason said about the clerics, all of this is really game balance. And that's really what it's about. And what I love that one of my favorite parts about conversations about gaming is where people decide the real world needs to matter, whether it be the gold thing that uh, (laughs) that uh, that people are talking about, whether it be the sword thing or like when I was on the show with Jason the other day, the other day, it was probably like a month ago, and we were talking about that OSR rule set or house rules, and we were, <laughs> we, we started digging into the fatigue rules, and we were like, hold on, why, it's a game, it's a, you know, it's like, it's just here for that reason, why are we comparing actual soldiers, you know, traveling and this and that, so yeah, <laughs> it's just funny where people decide to dig in, and, and that's part of the fun of the game, really, is to, in my opinion, is to dig in and see what you feel like needs to feel more and, you know, air quoting, real for you. Uh, you know, if it breaks somehow your immersion that your magic user can't use a sword even feebly, then let them use a sword. But know that in games that are simple anyways, you're stealing, and for lack of a better word, from the fighter by doing that. Because, again, we're going back to this, like, if you play the game, 
you're rolling the dice, just like the rules kind of, you know, advise you to do, <laughs> then you're going to find a lot of magic swords in OD&D and also in BX. And when you do, if everybody in the party can use them, the fighter loses that kind of small advantage that fighters get. This is why as rule systems start adding more and more exemptions, they have to start adding more and more rules and going all the way back to dark fluid. And I'm not uh, an expert at Beckme or rule psychopedia at all, but you wouldn't need to give the fighter some extra slam attack if it wasn't for the fact that there wasn't really level caps in Beckme. Okay, I'm going undercover now to not get excited. Because <laughs> I know in Beckme, they say there's level caps, but then elves and dwarves and halflings can all still gain experience points and still gain abilities. Maybe it's slower than the humans. I don't know. Again, I'm no expert. But it's just funny to me because you've now, some on some level, removed that level cap. And once you do that, human fighters suffer for it. So if you're trying to keep some kind of balance, if you want the the classic fighter to have some legs to stand on, so to speak, in your game, I think removing things like certain classes can't use certain weapons, especially in a game that's going to have a lot of magic weapons, which, again, if you're rolling and you're playing the way the rules are written, as it would be, uh, you will have that happen. Now, you're playing in a low magic setting. There's very rarely magic swords and stuff. Sure, why not? Maybe just give them a penalty if they're using it, or better yet, give the fighters a bonus. That's what I would do right from the beginning. I think fighters and magic users and clerics all having the exact same two hit at first level through third is not the way I like the game. And thus, I play OD&D using Chainmail because fighters are far superior at fighting. And if I give my clerics the ability to use magic swords or even the magic users, it really wouldn't hurt the fighters as much as it does in other systems. So that's a very long message. I hope I don't sound like I'm shouting, but I'm driving, so I'm using the, the car speaker. I always feel like I'm shouting when I... Let me know if I'm shouting. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Oh, I also want to add that <laughs> the idea of the two magic users facing off with swords. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what the answer is there. I guess I would just let them use them. Uh, but again, I don't let magic users use magic swords at, at low levels anyways. I have my own house rule here because of the balance issue. That's the reason why I don't do it. Uh, but if you don't care about that or you don't have a lot of magic swords and such in your world, then... Yeah, I mean, you know, two magic users fighting with swords will both have not a great, well, about a 50-50 chance of hitting each other, right? Although, I gotta say, have you ever seen, hopefully this isn't like a, a, a trigger for anybody, but, you know, think about when you were, I'm from the 80s, when I was a child of the 80s, you know, and after school there would always be a fist fight, and when you watch two kids that are like 11 years old have a fist fight... <laughs> Neither one really knows how to fight, right? They're just flailing around like whatever. It generally just ends up that the first, the one who just happens to be bigger, you know, wins, right? Because they've got the weight. So I, there's no skill involved there. So that's how I would treat that, you know? I mean, I would just say, yeah, they're hitting each other with swords, but they might as well be using daggers. So, <laughs> I mean, a sword is just a really big dagger in that case. Okay, thank you for that call, Daniel. And... Like I say, check out that Rule Psychopedia special episode on the 30th of December. I will say I agree. I don't like that first-level fighters have the same to-hit numbers on the attack matrix as first-level clerics and, and other characters. I'd like them to be one level higher, at least one number higher. That's why I kind of like that misreading of AD&D, where in addition to your regular attack, you also get 
attack for each level against, you know, creatures less than one hit die. Because, you know, potentially you're going to have two attacks around. <laughs> Is a um, first level fighter against creatures less than one hit die. But, I, I, you know, that I, that's something I talked about in a previous episode. Okay, let's move on now to our next call, which is going to open up the skills discussion. And I'm going to play calls from Carl, the Geomologist Presents, and Arlen of Live from Pelham's Wasteland about skills. And these are great calls. I had already kind of decided what I want to do with skills before getting these calls. So I'm going to play these calls, and then I'm going to explain the skill system I'm going to use in my solo game afterwards. So, Carl, take it away. Hey, Jason, just calling again on your last podcast. And what am I talking about or asking about? Oh, like skills and how to do skills. I, you know, honestly, I think um, Hyperborea does it really well. Uh, There's no really defined skills. But if you feel like you need to test something, climbing, jumping, Feet, uh, you know, a dexterity thing or like endurance for, you know, running all day, then you can do a test of and a particular attribute. It's a D6 roll. And if you'd roll, depending on your stat, um, you know, it's a one or two or one to three or up to five out of six. And you could do that with, uh, it doesn't say specifically in the rules, but it does suggest that you could do this for intelligence, wisdom, and charisma to do a test of. And there's also the feats of, so like, you know, the, your old Ben Bars lift gates, like a feat of strength, um, or feat of dex or something like that, feat of con. And you could roughly figure that out for the other attributes if you needed to. And then if, when they get to thief skills and then barbarian abilities or hunter skills, then they use it, you make it more granular, they use a d12. And I think that works pretty well. It's like a progression of D12. So it's kind of like, you know, a double D6 in a way. Um, I guess what you outlined from that particular rule set seemed like, well, I guess he's using the SRD 5.1. It definitely seems a lot like what D&D 5e does. Uh, look for a D or since D&D 3, actually. Uh, target a DC, roll your dice, add your attribute bonus and any other bonuses that might be available. So, so yeah, cool stuff, but um, I, I do like Hyperborea, and I got to play it recently, so I guess that's why it's on my mind. Hey, Jason, it's Arlen. I am calling in about skills from your most recent episode of Nerds RPG Variety Cast um, with a, an idea or two that I thought I would mention. Um, I will say, first off, I think that... Um, more detailed and, um, for lack of a better term, more prohibitive skill lists. I don't know if that's quite the right way to put it, but the the idea of like a skill list where if you don't have anything in the skill, you can't even try. Um, I think that often, to me, fits more kind of like high realism games, for lack of a better term, less of like kind of cinematic action and more of kind of... Um, I guess you would describe it as, uh, like, realistic proficiency. Like, in the way that, um, you know, for instance, in D&D, the fighter is able to basically pick up and use 
um, pretty much any weapon in most versions. Obviously, in versions that have exotic weapons, you might have to take an extra feat. Um, but that we know in real life, of course, uh, a person has to spend a fair bit of time studying specific weapons if they want to um, be any good with them. Um, and that it's not that kind of broad all in that, you know, weapons specialization sort of gets into that, but it, it's kind of, um, a, you know, a difference than, for instance, the way that you have in real life, like a, a, a sword master who doesn't know anything really about using a spear beyond, you know, poking with the pointy end and the kind of general knowledge of don't get hit, um, perhaps has some level of physical fitness, but certainly not the like really, really specific knowledge of their, you know, say chosen weapon. Um, and so that's kind of my thought is that for kind of more heroic fantasy, it makes sense to have more loose skill lists, skill lists that are kind of shorter and broader skills and all that sort of stuff in that in like, if you really wanted to get into like a, almost like a slice of life game, that that would be the place for a really exhaustive skill list where, you know, if you don't have the skill, you just can't do the thing and all that sort of stuff. As far as skill systems go, I will put forward what I think is a really clever way to get around the sort of skill system um, concept, and that is the way that Modiphius's John Carter of Mars 2D20 system handles um, checks and, and actions and all that sort of stuff, which in the game, it's a 2D20 game, so it's rolling a certain number of D20s, trying to roll under a certain number. Um, when you pick up the dice to roll, um, there are six attributes, and it's a combination of two attributes that creates your target number, um, which is, I think, a clever way to handle target numbers because it kind of gets away from, you know, the classic um, roll under on a d20 issue with D&D, &D, where, you know, if you have a, a, an 18 in something, that's pretty easy to do, and if you have a 10, it's not as easy um, that by having the combination of two attributes, um, and then that also brings in the kind of obvious, like, oh, well, so it's a sort of very flexible, depending on what you're specifically trying to do and how you're going about it, which of the attributes fits what you're trying to do. So, you know, in D&D terms, right, you have, like, strength and constitution for kicking down a door, but maybe have, like, strength and charisma for trying to... Uh, you know, intimidate somebody in a, a potentially violent situation and things like that. Um, and then the kind of second element that I really like from there is that you also have, I think they're called talents in the system, um, and you make them yourself, which is kind of an odd thing. Um, but I think that gets us to kind of the, you know, like D&D Thief style. Um, you have these kind of special abilities that are not just... Like, you have a high dexterity, so you can roll under it to sneak, but you also have your, like, really special sneak ability as a thief. Um, and, and that's, I think, a cool way to handle that kind of sense of skills for a kind of action-oriented cinematic game that you have your kind of broadly capable characters can kind of put their, you know, muscle into it and try to do most things, and then when they do something that is really kind of specific to what they're good at, they can um, really kind of shine at their special thing. 
Okay, some great calls there, Arlen. I like the idea of using two attributes together. Uh, Knight of the Ninja has a thing where you have an aggregate where you take all your attributes and use those to come up with an average of your attributes to use for skills that would use multiple attributes. So you would use an aggregate of your attributes for those skills. It just has one that has aggregate of all your attributes. Um, but, but I really like that. It simplifies the process, but it makes sure that's taking everything into account. What I'm going to do, though, for my game is I'm try to do something that sticks kind of close to what classic D&D might use when we think about things like one in six chance of being surprised or a one in six or two in six chance of finding a secret door, things like that. So skills are just going to be non-combat things. They're going to start at one in six. If you have a class where the class might matter in that skill, then that would give you a point or a pip. So at that point, they'll bump it up to two, two and six. If you have a high attribute, if you have an attribute bonus for an attribute that would apply to that skill check, then that would give you a pip. And if you have a secondary skill, like AD&D, a secondary skill, then that would give you a pip. Um, or if you can come up with another reason, you might need, you might get a pip, like you have somebody helping you or you have special equipment to help you do something. Those could give you pips. So, you know, and bump up your chance. The most you could ever have, though, is five out of six for a skill check. And that's what I'm going to do for skills. Super duper simple. Um, but I think it'll work fine for what I want to do. And it keeps me from having big skill lists. And I mentioned the AD&D secondary skills because I'm kind of thinking about, you know, use if I do AD&D, I'd use this as well. But if I run Rule Cyclopedia, I'm just going to do that. I, I might use the secondary skill list out of AD&D for Rules Cyclopedia if I do that. I don't know. Because, um, well, you'll hear on the 30th of December on that Rules Cyclopedia episode, we're going to talk about the skills. So you'll hear some thoughts on there. But that's kind of what I'm thinking about doing for, for my solo game. And then I'll report back um, at some point on how that went. But I want to thank everybody for the calls. Really appreciate everybody's feedback. Love the participation. Thank you to everybody that's listening that doesn't call in. And if you do want to take part in the conversation, all the ways to reach me are in the show notes. There are a variety of different ways. Don't forget to call your Conan entry if you haven't done it. You have until the 22nd of December. So get those in. And until next time, be excellent to one another. I'm going to turn it over to Colin and TJ. Play us out. And remember, folks, if you sent a call in to Jason and you haven't heard it on this episode, have no fear. It will appear. Joking about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could see him dead. Bring on the glow, bring on the glow. I want some more, bring on the glow.